This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome everybody to the crossover event of the century. All right, this is bigger. This is bigger than than the Avengers Endgame. This is bigger than all those. All right. We got a Planet Microcap Value After, I keep saying VAH, stands for Value After Hours crossover uh, episode with special guest Ian Castle. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And they're all here. I told you they're going to be here. They're all here. Let's do this. Uh, so we got we got Toby Carlisle at the Acquires Multiple. We got Jake Taylor, Farnham Street. We got Bill Brewster. The, the I don't even know how to introduce Bill anymore. I think he I think he preferred just podcast host at this point. You know that's that's his primary thing now. Yeah, I'm trying to win a Slashy Award. Yeah, see this is this. See, this is how t- how much I, how in the know I am. I don't even know what a Slashy Award is. Is it something like slash actor? Yeah, I'm a podcaster slash investor, just like uh, what was it? Was it was Zoolander? Was it Hansel that was an actor slash model? Oh no, who? Anyway, whatever. It's from Zoolander. It was Fabio, I think, won it actually. Wow. Actually, now I'm even more sad that I didn't even get a Zoolander reference. I really, I should, I should take a long look in the mirror. And then, of course, yes, we should. also, I really should. And then we I'm also proud. got Ian. <laughs> we also got Ian Castle from Microcap Club. Ian, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. So here's the thing. Here's how we're going to really kick this off. And this is really an important, important topic that I know everybody watching right now is very curious about. They all are wondering, how the hell are all these books staying up on my uh, bookshelf? This is not good. I don't know if you saw that. It's like a leaning tower of books. And it's really being weighed down by three in particular. There's one in the front that no one's heard of that requires multiple the Rebel Allocator, I've written by some other guy that's on, on this panel, and, and this Intelligent Fanatics project. So I don't know, guys, 
what should I do? Should I, do I, do I put a screw on or should I just tear it down and start anew? Cause any earthquake I'm, I'm done. Like that's it. Like I think, cost- I think you're, you're short, you're, you're short Brewster's book. <laughs> yeah, that's that's ri- it's coming soon. He he hasn't finished co- coloring it in yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, Bill, need, he needs like at least fifty interviews, right? Well I think played, that's where so we're at. Well we need fifty. We need like fifty interviews, and then it's the book. That's what. That's that's the game plan. Is that is that how it works? I think that's like the minimum amount. I'm, yeah, I mean, I I think that is true. You just get everybody else to write your book for you, and then you just kind of put it together and call it your book. <laughs> You, you know, there's that there's that old joke about it's in Australia. It's two football players meet, and one's just written an autobiography, and the other guy says to him, uh, "Congratulations on your book. Who wrote it for you?" And he said, oh, "I see you. Uh, you finished it. Who read it to you?" <laughs> yeah, I, I think- I, Bobby, I'm honored you even have my book up there because usually it's used as a doorstop. I usually see it. <laughs> Well, as, as I told you offline, it's because everybody read the second edition, you know, it was the first one that was like, that was just kind of getting the buzz. And then it was the second. And then it was the India version that probably sold the most. I think we can all agree. That's exactly right. It did. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff, guys. Well, in all seriousness, the, the main topic that I think we all really wanted to go off of here, being that the, we're at a microcap show and, you know, I host a microcap podcast, we got the microcap maven himself on here right now is I, I think when we talked offline is that I, I think we agreed that it was all about being that we were all microcap fans and we didn't know it yet. So, I, I, I mean, are we? Is that is that really how is, is that really where we're at right now? I think Ian, help us out here. Are we all microcap fans and we don't know it yet? Well, J- Jake's holding himself back. I can tell he wants to to pipe in, but you know, I, I find that <laughs> I find that most people are. Uh, you know, especially if you live and invest in a certain geography like Canada, I think seventy five percent of their stocks are microcap by definition. So a lot of these people they don't realize they are, but they are microcap investors. But you know, I know. Just through some conversation with Bill, I know he's gravitating lower and lower into the cesspool of microcap. That's, of course, that's, that's not true, but high quality names. And you know, I know um, also Toby just uh, launched or didn't launch, but take over a microcap ETF. Uh, I think the symbol's DEEP, D-E-E-P. And I know Jake is very familiar with microcaps. I've talked to Jake a dozen times on it. Uh, I don't know if he actually owns any in his portfolio, but I know he probably understands the- Jake's the a microcap investor. Yeah. I do. I own. I'm. I'm guilty as charged. So there you have it. We are. We are all microcap investors. <laughs> I was gonna say, Bill. Like you recently did. You did a great interview with Ian, and 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 I think you posted on Twitter how you are now officially a microcap convert, or at least looking. I don't so know I mean, that I said I was a convert. I said I, that I would be open to looking in smaller screens. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get there by buying a microcap and not just buying something and writing it into a microcap. He's he's microcap <laughs> curious. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, mean, I mean, I'm I'm long some of Kyle Sermonara's uh, companies, so I guess gotcha. I'm I'm in microcap land. I, I, easier to buy than to sell, though. So we'll see how it all works out. Well, what would you say was the thing you've learned the most? You know, since that interview with Ian. You know, I know me and you have talked a couple times offline. I mean, what are some of the things you learned the most that were enlightening about microcap land that you didn't know before uh i mean look i don't i don't really i I guess that the the thing that intrigues me the most is i think that it's probably a space that you can actually do better work than than other people and get insights that sort of aren't floating around twitter already 
Um, or, you know, when I say Twitter, I just, that's who I communicate with, but generally, um, you know, it's, I, I like the idea of a, a series of businesses that I think that maybe I can out network people about or out hustle people about or whatever. Um, you know, that would, that would be the thing that I, I like the appeal of it. The downside is, you know, I think Ian's point on, you really have to watch how management executes, how the price reacts and not have a long leash. Um, I mean, I, I implemented that on, on naked wines and perhaps, you know, rightly or wrongly, we'll sort of see, but I don't, that business isn't huge. And I think the price that, you know, I had paid to get in implied some growth and I had some inventory issues that I was worried about some churn and, I had Ian's conversation ringing in my ear and I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to get out of this. I'm not going to lose to a risk that I'm highly like it's, it was a key risk for me. And I started to experience it in the product. And I talked to a couple other customers that were having something similar go on. So I sort of led the data coming out. We'll see if that was the right decision or not. But, um, I think, I think really watching the holding and, and not, not giving it too much leash is probably where I will have the the biggest struggle. Well, I think somebody with like you, Bill, too, that understands, you know, probably better than most businesses investing in general. I mean, I think what I said on your podcast and, and what I've said before is, you know, when you start rationalizing owning something, it's usually when you should start selling it. At least that's what I've found in my experience. Yeah, I was I was looking for reasons not to sell it. And uh, what it kept coming back to is a bunch of smart people that I know are along it. And I was like, I can't look myself in the mirror and lose to that. Right. So um, I think I think generally the thing about that, that name is it's a little bit more liquid. So, you know, being choosy about what names you get into and then understanding that it's going to take a while to get out. That's not a world that I'm used to operating in. Are you in long-term capital gains in Naked Wines? No, man. That was only like a couple months, but I mean- Has it, pop, has it run a lot? No, it didn't. Uh, it, I think I made like 14% or something, but it, it wasn't even about what I was up or down. It was about like, I had a fundamental thesis that I thought that the, the pandemic offered that company a unique opportunity to acquire customers. But in that kind of business, um, you got to serve the customers that you acquire correctly. And I was worried. I mean, we, my wife and I were opening bottles of wine. So for people that don't know, I like it because it's a risk-free offering. If you don't like the, the wine that you're drinking, you can literally pour it down the drain and write to them and say, I want my money back. Well, you know, that's all well and good until you have house guests over and three bottles of wine taste like crap. And your wife says, please don't open another one of those bottles. It's getting embarrassing. And, you know, like once it's that, the, the problem if if my experience is representative of reality and i have had people reach out that say like the quality just isn't there what what is your greatest asset in the pandemic driving customers can also end up in like i think of it like catastrophic success right because if you're not prepared to make those customers happy then you form like it I just think the potential that people are forming a negative opinion is much higher than I thought when I got in it. And that, that fear drifted over three months because they got tighter and tighter on inventory. And I felt like the quality decreased. 
So I just I'm not I'm not going to lose to that risk in that entity. Is that specific to them, or is that, it's just anecdotally? I've noticed there's a lot of stuff that uh, just there's no inventory for lots of different things that I regularly get that just they're just not there anymore haven't, and haven't been for months. Yeah, I guess, I guess like with that particular entity, and I I like that entity, and I like the guys that are along it. So I'm not trying to like talk negatively on it, but what makes me worried is that was solving something in my life that I really believed in the value proposition. And what it did was open the door for the local liquor store to serve me wine that had inventory. Right. So it's just like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, that business I thought was very habitual and I don't think it's easy to rebrand a bad experience in customers' minds. And I don't think that I was paying like a super cheap price. So I think it's got to grow into what I paid. And I think that that little growth, the uh, the certainty that I had when I underwrote the growth changed and I just wasn't going to stick around. But maybe that's because I got like a quick trigger now. What's the, what's the, what are they selling that's different from everybody else? What's their offering? Uh, I mean, they have, so they have, uh, they are the actual winery, so they can ship direct to consumer. And what they basically do is it's like white label uh, wine where, you know, they'll go out and contract with a grower. The grower will grow on their premises, you know, so like they lease the land, they help the grower obtain the grapes, and then they are able to ship to you. So one thing that's really awesome in Florida, it's it varies state by state, but I could order wine on Wednesday night and get it on Friday. And the average winery needs to charge a lot per bottle. I mean, I think it's like somewhere between seven and nine dollars a bottle to ship. And naked can do it for like three to five because they have the scale. And, you know, I I kind of there's the part of me that likes the idea of um you know, convenience and uh, e-commerce and shipping alcohol to your door. I mean, that's sort of the way the world like should work to me, but um, I, I'm not sure. I hope it does work that way. Like so I said, can, I know a lot of only buy, You can only buy their wine, but if you can get some other wine shipped, why, why can't you just choose the wine that you want and get that shipped to you? That's a, well, they have a, bunch. a regular treaty. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, the three-tier system in the US doesn't allow like just any wine. I mean, a winery, a small winery can ship to you, right? But they don't have the scale to do the shipping. And if you talk to different wineries, it is a major pain to comply with every state's regulation. So it's like much harder in practice than it may seem. So most most wine is distributed through a distributor that then goes to retail. I mean, not to focus on on, on the company again, but my, cause we're based in California, you know, me, Toby and Jake. And, you know, like I know my parents had a wine subscription to some of the, the local wineries from Napa and Sonoma and stuff like that. I mean, it, so they, you can't get those wines as part of this subscription. It's only the white label stuff from wherever they're producing the wines right now, or that that's how it works. Yeah, that's correct. And then what they do is they, you know, the whole thesis is since they're selling direct to consumer, they're trying to cut out the middleman. And there's a lot of margin in wine that they're trying to cut out and and sort of give give the benefit to the consumer. I guess where I'm somewhat concerned and where I got concerned is a couple of the bottles that my wife was like, this is getting embarrassing were, you know, north of $25. And that's actually where they say their greatest value proposition is. So 
it just um you know i don't know i I don't if it's disney and they have a snag for a quarter that doesn't really matter that much to me when it's naked and i perceive them to be having a, a snag when they're introduced to a bunch of customers and i'm i'm like I was at my friend's house and I said, Hey, you should try this. And she's like, ah, I tried that. The wine's not that good. Like that's a hard consumer perception to redo if you mess that up. And I'm just worried that they may be in a forced position of messing it up to the biggest amount of customers they've ever seen. So I don't want to sit around with it. And it, it was, it went back to Ian's conversation with me when I was just like, okay, this is smaller. So it's inherently a little bit more fragile. So watch it more carefully. Yeah. So, so speaking about that, maybe it'd be interesting. One of the questions that I wanted to posit to you guys was the this idea that's especially come on in the last twenty years, but um, maybe even more so in the last five of returns on scale, um, and that you know the bigger the business, some some of the returns have been even better due to the network effects and you know different uh, economic characteristics. How do you feel that? How do you square microcap with that? Um, you know, kind of David versus Goliath, you know, if Goliath is the one who's winning and has the resources to keep winning in the new kind of digital world, why would you bet on David then? This is a, a, a this is a perfect question for Ian. Thank you, Bobby. <laughs> no, I think, <laughs> no, I think, I think it is a great question. And we talked about this a little bit previously, you know, when you can look at something like Amazon, look at something even like Target that was up 100% last year, I believe, or Apple was up 100%. I mean, it's mind boggling to think the largest companies in the world, which are mostly technology companies, are growing at still growing at 30% CAGRs, you know. And now I'm, now I'm supposed to take on this, um, uh, a bunch of risk investing in smaller companies that are also growing at 30% CAGRs. You know, like, why would I bother doing that? You know, and I think it's a it's the right question to ask. And, and I think we've been in, you know, Toby would probably give some some good analysis of this. But I mean, I think we've been in this kind of this trend of high tech growth for a long, long time. You know, but I still believe you can find these undiscovered companies that are just undiscovered. And, you know, one of the points I'd like to make, too, and this probably gets back to your point as well, Jake, is just because a company's illiquid and unknown and undiscovered doesn't mean it's undervalued. And you know, I find that quite often, you know, I'll find a stock that I really like that, you know, trades a thousand shares a day, maybe like $5,000 worth a day. And I'm like, oh, wow, nobody knows about this. But, you know, you look at the valuation, you're like, okay, it's not really cheap, you know, and so you find that quite a bit. And, you know, even in microcap, you know, I think probably one of the misperceptions is thinking that it's just a bunch of idiots that are investing down here. I mean, there's a lot of smart investors that are investing down in the small microcap arena. It's getting, the demographic is getting younger and younger and younger and smarter and smarter and smarter. Back, you know, 15 years ago, I remember going to a microcap conference probably in 2004, 2005. I would go to an event, there'd be 60 people there and I would be by far the youngest person in that room. The average age was probably 75. It's like they just let out the local retirement center and said there was a free lunch, come on in. <laughs> it's like what it looked like. There was very few younger people there. And now when you go to Bobby's event or you go to another event, you know, it, I would say the average age feels like it's 30, you know, or less. And, you know, you could say that's partly a function of a 10 year bull market, people wanting to take on extra risk, not knowing or understanding the risk they're taking. Um, but I also think that it's probably just a, quite honestly, I mean, microcap's been beaten up for a lot of, a lot of years and even a decade or two that's just getting revitalized now. Um, 
So that's a roundabout. I mentioned a lot of things there. None of them answered your question, Jake. But I just think <laughs> for, for some of, for some of us that like looking at the first small undiscovered companies, they're still out there. You know, I still, you know, I have as many feelers out there looking at at ideas than anybody with Microcap Club and also just personal networks. And there's still five or six companies I stumble upon a year and think, wow, where where was that thing been at? I thought I looked at everything. You know, and part of that is. You know, maybe half of those are here in North America and the other half is just starting to look abroad in Australia and the UK and other countries. But I mean, it's just a phenomenal opportunity when you think that half the publicly traded companies that are out there are small ones that 99% of the professional financial universe has never heard of. You know, and that's and that's the opportunity that's down. Ian, can I ask you a question? Because it's been, you, you sort of alluded to it earlier, but there's been this long period now, maybe 10 years at least of small and micro really getting beaten up relative to the rest of the market to the point that the size factor, high minus, small minus large is now sort of, well, there was some suggestion like six months ago that it was basically one of those factors that we had to throw on the the trash pile. It sort of seems to have come roaring back really recently over the last maybe six months, maybe three months, something like that. What do you think helped you, you know, your experience was clearly you've done really well in small and micro cap for that entire period. Why is your experience so different from the index? That's a good question. I, I think, you know, if, if you look at the last three months, quite honestly, you see a lot of trash that's, that's flying. You know, I think there's been some research done. You might even have it, Toby, where, you know, if the, the unprofitable Microcaps are outperforming the profitable ones by you know three to one margin in the last three months or something like that, and so that's just some it's one of these odd oddities that's happening. And just I think Robinhood has propelled microcap in general, you know, for the listed microcaps that are out there, just increasing the amount of the amount of liquidity we see in some of these microcap names is unreal, and some of that's going to result in bad outcomes, but one of the positive outcomes is it's increasing the volume and liquidity profiles enough to where investment banks and research institutions can now be profitable starting to cover these companies again for the first time in 20 years. And so you're seeing a lot more financings being done down in the small and microcap arena because those liquidity profiles have increased enough to where it makes them to, them makes sense for them to have research coverage and a banking department devoted to them again, which we haven't seen since the mid-90s. So you know, it's, it's interesting. The last three months, four months, I've felt it, you know, I felt like it's, there's just been a lot of trash that's, that's going up, but there's also the positive part of that, where it is, I think, a net positive, probably for micro cap, because of that, you know, you kind of have to take the good, good with the bad, <laughs> with some of these things. Coincidentally, it's the best performance for my, for my strategy in, in about 10 years, the last three months. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is really funny, because I, don't think that I'm a trash investor. I think that I'm a quality investor, you know, inside the value, inside the value world. I don't, I'm not disputing your characterization at all um, because the, the rally, lots of people have said it, but the rally has been characterized by small, cheap, which is value and junk, which is, um, you know, the inverse of quality. Is that why you took your shirt off on Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna that was actually my other main question to ask was that why the the shirtless twitter uh, photo well what is up with uh people taking their shirts off on twitter like the bigger your account the more likely you are to take your shirt off just just so people listening at home don't think that i took my shirt off i I cut my head off and posted on somebody else who put their 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 torso on twitter 
mostly because that bloke's a lot fitter than I am. <laughs> I wouldn't put my own up like that. I showed my belly button once and I'll never do it again. It was disgusting. I'm sorry to all my followers. <laughs> On Twitter? I have to live with it, so you had to see it for a day. <laughs> Did you delete that tweet? No, no, I kept that up. It was after it was after Skinny Legs posted his, so I had to, I had to show him mine. Anyway, I digress. Wait, Toby, I wanted to, you know, you you just said that, you know, this has been the best performing few months for for your strategy. I mean, have you been able to deduce as you know why that you've been seeing that as well? At first, no. first let, let me interrupt. Toby, okay, let, go. You 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 now run a microcap ETF. I believe yep. the symbol's deep, D E E P. When did that happen? I know that's been somewhat new new opportunity for you. Give us the background on that. Yeah, the because I run a big one as well, Zig, which is uh, mid cap and above, and it's long short. And uh, the, I watched co the competitors in that space, um, and one of them was DVP, which was the Tiedman Wealth the Deep Value Fund. And they they decided that they didn't want to run it anymore, I think, and they sort of handed back the keys to to the uh, to the white label provider. And uh, I was interested in running it, but I didn't want to run it as a large cap strategy because I've already got a large cap strategy, but I, I could see that small and micro was so beaten up and it just, it's been like in my back test data, it's been literally a decade of going backwards. And so that was one of the challenges was getting it through the board of the trust, showing them that, um, you know, it's not something, it's not endemic to this strategy or it's not a, it's not a characteristic of this strategy that just loses money all the time. <laughs> And I was trying to show them it was sort of unusual, but it was a big bet. And I'm glad they kind of let us put it on because it was, I thought that the the portfolio was, when I was looking at the portfolio, the construction of the portfolios, and I started saying this at the end of last year, I was calling it the big long, but the portfolios looked to me like they were, like they literally needed no multiple expansion. This is the small and micro portfolios, needed no multiple expansion to start outperforming because the yield was so big. The yield at that stage was like 6%. And the uh, the reinvestment growth, I thought, was going to be very big as well, not really knowing how much. And since we got, we got it trans changed over on October 26, since then it's run really hard. It's run up a lot. But it's Bottom still... ticked, basically, the uh, underperformance. Yeah, how much how much was that skill uh, there? It's 100% skill, 100% skill. <laughs> no, it was just, it was 100% luck. It was just, and, and I'd been like, if it had been, if I'd had my way and it had got through the first board meeting, then it would have been three months earlier. So we would have like had three months of bad performance. But as it happens, we got, we got, we were unable to do it in the first board meeting. Got it through the second board meeting three months later, which meant that we managed to tick it like literally the day that it turned over was probably the bottom for that strategy, and it's rocketed since then. But I think, I still it's, a think great, it's very cheap. great product because it. I, I think it's easier for the average person to hold that than to hold the underlying within it. Because when I, I go through and I look what's inside of it, it's like, <laughs> oh boy, you know, let's, uh, I might need to start taking antacids or something to, uh, to hold some of these names. But then as the whole strategy, though, it like makes a ton of sense. And that's, that's a common feature of the stuff that I run that, yeah. And I, that's why I've written the books because I've been trying to explain that. These things are optically like you just don't get to buy them. Uh, there's never a good time to buy them. When when you buy them, they always look really ugly. You're sort of relying on the the extreme undervaluation and the 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 downswing in the business cycle. That when the cycle changes back up again, they're going to look a little bit better. But in the time that we're going to hold them, and this is why um, 
I talk about quality too. I prefer cash on the balance sheet, cash flows, and ideally I want them buying back stock. And when I like, I can pull up the Morningstar. Morningstar is, d- does this thing where they 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 call it style measures, but they'll look through your portfolio and compare it to the index. So on every value measure, uh, like price earnings, price to book, price to sales, price to cash flows, deep is cheaper. It's got a higher dividend yield, and then all of the growth measures are are higher than the index and and the average in the in the category. And the reason is that you know we we do have this extreme value bias, and we also look for very high quality within that kind of value universe. So I, I, it doesn't surprise me that the portfolios look like that. The problem is that the portfolios also looked really good last year, and they they uh, they underperformed. So it's not just how the portfolio looks, it, even though, you know, I, I think that ultimately over time that should win out. It's just, it takes the cycles in this business are long. And it's, I, I think on my hats off to people who've survived in small and micro for a long time, because it's been tough. And now I think you got a tailwind. So it could be a tailwind for a decade. When it, I have a dumb question for you, Toby. So you run two ETFs now. And, you know, when I think about maybe, you know, somebody like Jake or somebody like I that have either SMA or LP structures, you know, when you're talking to new investors, you're talking to new investors because you have to onboard them. They have to fill out subscription agreements, blah, blah, blah. But obviously ETFs, it's a lot less friction, you know? And so I'm curious on something like that with those two, like how much of your time is spent actually talking to new investors? Do do you talk to new investors regularly that are interested or do you know, like 50% of the people you think that are, that make up the balance of the, the funds that are in it? Like, just curious how you think about that. Yeah, it's hard to know. I, the, the, so Deep had some nice, got a nice write-up in Bloomberg where they're not they're not saying that it is the next ARC, which is the very big ETF out there. They're just saying that you know this is a counter strategy to ARC. Like that's, I'm I'm I basically trade uh, uh, inversely correlated to ARC. It's bizarre. It's and I get it with Zig because Zig's short some of the the ARC longs, but Deep is not. Deep's sort of its own its own universe of stocks. It's completely different, but it's it, it trades inversely. So, you know, if anybody's got a whole lot of ARC exposure, you could hedge it with some deep exposure. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. That won't actually work. But the the I get I get people asking regularly um, you know to explain to explain what's in there. And I I I see the flows like from something like a Bloomberg article, but not really um, I don't know necessarily who's coming in or who's going out. So I assume that because my partners in that are round till and they've got they've got quite a young universe of people who are invested in stuff like they've got other ETFs that are sports betting one and a, and a gaming and entertainment, like a computer gaming and entertainment ETF. And uh, so I think that they're younger people who they look at something like deep and they're just like, what is this thing doing here? But maybe, you know, because it's round till they give me that it gets some flows for that reason. So I don't know necessarily who's in there. It's definitely not the pot, you know, no, definitely not the pot has nothing, no credit the podcast. There. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's helpful because at least people sort of see us chatting regularly Yeah. and uh, know kind of how I'm thinking at any point in time. But having said that, you know, the strategy is still pretty, um, the strategy is systematic, so there's not a lot of input that I have one way or the other. So how I'm feeling on any given day is really irrelevant. I'm sort of discussing more globally what I think the prospects of it are. So you know, the the dividend has come in, the dividend yield on that fund's come in from six percent to I think it's a little bit over four percent at the moment. But that's you know that's 
you can take the inverse of that and that's the that's the run in the price so to me that says that the value has started working but whenever you get the run like that the, the forward returns go down So, I, I mean, do we want to cover anything else? Or I, I got a couple questions in from Twitter that, that people wanted to, us to cover on here. So uh, I could either go there or, or did anybody have any other questions about Deep or uh, whether the bookshelf is still holding up? Or uh, I mean, and, <laughs> should I go there? Questions. We can take. I have one uh, that I thought about beforehand. Okay. Um, go for it, Jake. The, uh, I think one of the cool things about the microspace is that the CEO will take your call often, right? Like if I tried to call Tim Cook, he's not having it, right? But, you know, if I'm in a smaller name, you know, you could talk to them, maybe get to know them a little bit. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? One of the things I'm always worried about is the halo effect of management. And you don't get to be the CEO unless you know how to sell a little bit. Um, what do you guys think about that? That, that's another two hours right there, but Ian, go that is. Ian or Bill, Ian, two Bill, minutes Bill. or less go. I don't, you know, I don't know if they're for me, you know, I've gone back and forth on that, like a pendulum. I would say, you know, if you were talking to me 10 years ago, I would have said it is a CEO of a small microcap company's fiduciary duty to let more people know about their stock today than knew about it yesterday you know, or else. Why are they public? You know, where then, and probably, uh, maybe William Thorndike and the Outsiders in 2012 kind of shine some light on that, where you have these folks that were great capital allocators that didn't care about IR that performed really well. You know, and then I kind of pivoted to the other side or the other extreme of that. And kind of where I end up today is kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, and, you know, I think for me, it just comes back more and more the older I get about just execution. You know, you're always going to find a CEO that's more talkative than another one. Some that don't talk to you, some that do talk to you, but it just comes, I try to let their execution lead in my decisions. And it's funny, having written a book on intelligent fanatics, you know, probably one of my biggest takeaways from that book was actually paying more attention to the people around the intelligent fanatic than the person mm. themselves. And so that's a big part of where my diligence has changed is actually probably spending less time with the CEO, with him or her that's running the company and more so about the types of folks that they surround themselves with. Um, and, you know, even when I look at kind of how I've evolved over the years, it seems like, at least for me, I've always, there's always like these two or three or five year swaths where I'm probably waiting something more than I should. And there was probably five years where I waited the CEO more than I should. You know, and even more so almost in execution because I just liked his qualitative characteristics of that individual, you know, and then you might wait something else, you know, valuation more than you should. Like this needs to be, you know, the cheapest thing I can find or whatever it is. And I find like over the last 20 years, I've kind of overweighted things and then kind of get back to the reversion to the mean of where I should be, you know, overweighed some things, learned more about this, kind of brought back. And now it's kind of just a, um, a stew, if you will, where I just try to weight everything equally, but the overrunning theme is just execution, execution. When you say you when you say execution, sorry, are you, are you yeah. looking to see are they doing what? Yeah, it's just simple what you, doing what, what they, they say they're going to do. Yeah. yeah. Have you noticed that that phenomena, like in the outsiders, where a a good possible cap allocator almost always has a really strong number two who's operationally minded and kind of blocking and tackling in the business. A lot of them do, but not always. Um, I do like, yeah, I mean, usually there is that, you know, um, 
that person that's a little bit less spoken, that's kind of the numbers person behind the scenes. A lot of times you do see that. It's nice to see that kind of pair or team part with the micro cap. You, you know, just, just like, oh, sorry, Bill. Go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, like, you know, probably the, the most recent micro cap big win that I've been, you know, for, I guess fortunate to watch. I haven't participated, so I don't know how fortunate I am, but, um, you know, it's been my, my buddy Mike Mitchell. And, uh, you know, he, he called up, he saw liquidation, uh, opportunity and called, called, I mean, it was Kyle Sermonara on the phone. Right. And then they start talking and then he starts to understand how this guy thinks. And then he's like, all right, I like how this guy thinks. And then he looks into it a little bit. And I do think that, you know, for me, uh, when I was diligencing that sort of complex of companies, uh, I mean, I, I just, I called anyone that would reach out to me that said that they knew him, didn't like his partner, liked his partner, like anything. I, I do like the ability to check the the character of people. Now, maybe that's because we have a podcast and I have a little bit more access to people that want to talk, but um, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the people part, at least, I mean, I've, I have not been in this space long enough to know anything, right? But um, to me, the people part in this area of the world is very, very important. And uh, I would need to talk to a CEO in order to to get involved with the company. I don't, I don't think that I could get involved with a really small company without talking to management. I, and I agree. I didn't, I didn't mean to undermine too much of this speaking to management. I still talk to every CEO I talk to and, and at least three or four people around them. You know, I would just, I think 10 years ago, I was going down to like, I was talking to people they went to high school with and stuff like that. Now I'm going to take a little bit too far, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get but, it, because you want but to it is. character. No, exactly. I mean, the smaller these companies are, the more important management becomes. And especially when you get down in the super small stuff, you know, sub 50 million, a lot of times it is just a one person shop. And, and the bet you're making is that they can grow it. And hopefully they have the wherewithal to build a team around them as they grow it and build in those processes um, there's feedback loops so they can scale quality with scaling of the business, kind of what we talked about with with your circumstance, Bill. So well, let me throw a question to you guys because I, I don't meet with management. I don't really like to do it because I, uh, I like charismatic folks and I'm always persuaded by what they have to say. But to the extent that I kind of listen to what they're saying, I, I always think I'm listening for something that uh, – some sort of trick to understanding what they're what they're doing, or some sort of um, you know idea to get where they're going, and trying to ignore all the stuff that I really like about them. Do you guys have any sort of view on whether it's actually helped your results to talk to these guys, whether it does actually help you, and, and in what way? Like now, I now I think this guy's got great character. How can you assess someone who doesn't have great character from a conversation? Well, I mean, Buffett's changed my life. And I, I listen to everything he says. I, I find it really, really funny when value investors are like, I don't want to talk to management, but I'll go sit in Omaha and recite everything that Buffett says. Like, you're talking to management. You may not be talking. He might be talking to you. But, like, I, I, I find it confounding that value investors say, I don't want to talk to management, and then they listen to Buffett nonstop. But Buffett's telling you, the, the reason is that Buffett's giving you the guide Whereas management's giving you, you know, I'm I'm not talking to him because I want to know. I'm not listening to him because I want to know about Berkshire. I'm listening to him because I want to know about investing. I guess. I don't, I, for, I don't know. I don't know that I agree with that. You might. Least, that may be for you. I'm not sure that I agree with that for 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 me or for most people. 
for me, Toby, I know me and the consistency of talking to the CEOs that I talk to, which is fairly consistent, it's less about confirming my conviction. It's more about watching out for the downside, seeing how just tone variances change in their voice, how they talk about different parts of the business. That has saved me more on the downside than, and that's worth more to me than even the upside, because I kind of know the bull thesis, you know, and the conviction of it. It's more about protecting my downside. Yeah, I think it's yeah. possibly a good uh, negative indicator, potentially, and a, a deal breaker, not necessarily a deal maker. Um, if you you picked up on something where you're like, it just gives me a bad feeling. I mean, those we've evolved to detect insincerity in people, right? Like that's something we're very good at. It might actually be explained why we have so much intelligence uh, was through managing social dynamics and relationships. So we're wired to kind of sniff out BS. And if you start to you know smell it, um, there's probably maybe something behind that. Uh, and, and it pays to probably listen to that. And maybe, you know, obviously you can be sold pretty easily, but um, figuring out if the horse has a broken leg before the race starts is often a, a pretty good thing to know, even if it doesn't factor into your model necessarily. Yeah. What, what about, a, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Toby. Uh, I was just uh, like, how does, uh, not, not that, not that say Valiant, and I realize this is not a, not a large cap, this is not a small cap stock, but Valiant, you know, was like for a period of time there, it was just everybody had a position in Valiant, had a big position in Valiant, and they're all looking at each other saying, well, Sequoia's got a big position, and uh, I, I don't want to name anybody else who I, I can't remember who else had it, but they were, you know, it felt for a while like every big value investor had a position in Valiant. And, you know, I, I, I looked at it a few times and I just didn't get it and I, I didn't ever have one in there and that felt dumb for a while and that felt smart for a while after that. So I just, what, what is it that allows these guys, you know, we're, we're, all good at, we're all good at assessing so as far as we know, you know, the, the character of someone. What, what, what is it that allows something like a Valiant to sneak through? Well, I, I think just like everybody likes to point to Amazon as a you know two thousand bagger or whatever it is at this point, you know there's, you're always going to have those outliers and the downside like a Valiant as well. And just because Valiant lost a lot of people money, a lot of people made money too, you know. And I think probably the biggest takeaway relating that to microcap is you know a lot of these companies that I own, a lot of the companies I own today in the portfolio, you know I'm not going to be holding forever. You know something's going to change where I'm going to be selling them. You know, I know it, you know, it's just what my history says and not, you know, and you're always going to have an outlier event. I had two of them in my career too, where something really negative came out. You know, the one of them happened in like 2011, it was like about 30% of my portfolio. They hauled the stock because the auditor said they couldn't find the cash that was supposedly on the balance sheet, you know, and Did it turn you know, up? I, again, I look back. <laughs> I, it was I, in I, the couch cushions. <laughs> yeah, it, it, they, it did not turn up, but it, Ended up taking a loss on that. It's one of those you always look back, well, should I have done this or that or the other thing? And you're always going to have these outlier events on the negative side. And everybody likes to beat up Sequoia for laying it run up to whatever 15% of their portfolio. And then they took, you know, took a hit on it, which was probably still more money than they invested in it originally. You know, but you're always going to have those types of events that come out. And you can't you learn what you can and then you don't beat yourself up over it any more than that. At least that's what that's how I view it. I mean, Naked's a good example of that right now, right? That it's almost universally anybody who's in. I've seen it discussed as a as a like a consensus long on Twitter for a long time, more than six months, a year maybe. And there's I forget who it is, but one of the guys who invests very rarely has a position in it. So that's sort of the thing that 
Bill, do you, who am I? Do you know who I'm, who I'm talking Is it Norbert Lou? Yeah, but he bought it at like two bucks, so it's a completely different bet. All right now, I mean, he bet he bought it at like a two hundred million dollar valuation. Now it's closer to seven hundred. So slightly. What company different. was that? I, I I didn't hear. Naked it's Naked Wines. Naked Wines. Yeah. For the, the the qualitative setup that I like to find, and you know, obviously I'm more of a growth investor, but the types of people that I like to find, the leaders that manage them have had previous success. You know, I love to find a founder of a company that had a 50, 100, 150 million dollar type of payout on a previous business. And now he's backstopping his own vision with this new opportunity. And there's not many of them, but you can find one of them a year where you're like, whoa, this guy just put in $10 million of his own capital and he's backstopping a great management team and he doesn't need to to listen to the investment bankers that are going to be calling him up every day or everybody else that's going to be, you know, he's just going for it. And those are the folks, it's kind of like those little qualitative things I look for that over the years, I realized, you know, 80% of the time, that's something you should take a serious look at. Those types of people. Yeah. Well, they got something in them that keeps them going. Right. Mm-hmm. That a lot of people would just hit the eject button and say, I'm over, you know, I'm done. Hey, yep. hey Ian, the, Two things that that it was that it, that came to mind based on Jake's question when you asked about you know whether it can be a good thing or a bad thing and you know I think back to all the interviews I've done with management teams as well as you know all the interviews I'm sure you've done and hosting two events and hearing all the presentations and everything but I'd say the two things that stand out to my mind that I always kind of listen for just to just out of interest and and usually when I look back and see if I've interviewed them again or how the companies perform, it's when a company says that they are addressing a TAM that's in the multiple billions to, you know, tens of billions, just, just a ridiculous number that just doesn't make sense, especially considering where they're currently at. And then on the positive side, probably the number one thing I love hearing the most um, whether it results in any kind of good performance or not, I just, I just appreciate it the most. And I actually heard it for the first time when I was at one of your events, sitting in one of the group sessions, is when the CEO told you the bear case, just flat out, here's why our company will fail. I mean, in your experience, some of the companies that you've looked at, you know, have, have those two things come up a lot or have, has there been any other things in speaking with management that you're like, okay, this is a good reason why to talk to management because you can get some of this information. No, I, you know, and it's funny you mentioned that. You, you probably have interviewed more management teams than anybody on this call or most people that are out there. I mean, I wonder how many people you've interviewed over the years. It's in the, thousands, it's in the, thousands, the thousands, probably. Thousands it, range now. <laughs> it, would, it, would, it would be interesting if you were able to kind of benchmark and, and uh, you know, kind of write down things as you were interviewing them to see which ones actually worked out or didn't, you know, but anyway, <laughs> but I digress. But I think, I, I think it might be more of a personal thing. I, I'm like you, like I hate hearing companies say they're going to, you know, try to get 1% of a trillion dollar market, you know, I'd ra- I could really care less about the TAM, you know, I, in fact, I love small TAMs. It means, you know, if they, I love when they dominate a small market because, more. yeah, because it means they, the, when a company dominates a small market and it's a micro cap, obviously it's a small market, but it, it really vets management because it, they either took the market by taking the market or they created the market, you know, either way it shows they're competent, you know, and I, and I love that as kind of a qualitative attribute. You know, and that's what I look for as well. But I'm with you on that. Sounds good. All right. Well, we I think we got about like 10, 15 minutes left. So I'm going to get to our Twitter questions. And this one actually ties in perfectly because uh, it, it was the first question submitted. And uh, it was from Atlas Semi. 
You know, uh, she was featured both on Planet Microcap and also on Bill Brewster's pod. And uh, she's she's quite incredible in all the work she's doing on ESG. And so, uh, she, I, I mean, I guess trying to relate ESG to microcap investing and, you know, for me, the most important thing I'd, I'd argue, at least, especially in microcap, because this is something that they can have control over is the G governance, you know, and so let's just say in general, ESG microcaps, what is, what is everyone's thoughts? Everyone's thought there. I mean, uh, is it is it possible to implement an ESG strategy successfully, both at, for on the, from the company level and on the investor level in microcaps? Um, anybody? Just jump right on in with this one. I'm not an ESG investor, but I have uh, recently talked to some folks who are. Um, anytime you add a limiting factor to a uh, to a universe, you, you're likely to you, well, your performance is going to deviate from the universe. And uh, to the extent that the E and the S uh, cause you to deviate, I think they tend to cause you to deviate below the the index performance. The G might be like a quality metric. But the G is sort of hard to implement in the sense that the way that we like to implement it in uh, making these assessments is often with a box checking exercise. Whereas I think, you know, the G to the extent that it's a quality metric should be manifesting in the financial statements as, you know, get better governance should manifest in better results or it should, you know, just it, it just eliminates the possibility of self-dealing and all, you know, overpayment too much compensation, all that sort of stuff. So um, I think that there should be more focus on the G. It probably deals with some of your issues on the E and the S side as well. Because um, I do think that companies should be, uh, should recognize other stakeholders for, for a variety of reasons. One, because it increases their risk uh, to not, to not appropriately uh, recognize stakeholders who can be injured by, uh, by the company. And so I, I think that I think that the G is much more important, and I think the G gets almost no attention. And I think that if you get the G right, then you probably get the E and the S right too. Um, but typically, when you add a limiting factor, it leads to underperformance. Yeah, I would add that um, <clears throat> I don't like the the fragility of having rules across all companies like we kind of start to see with with iss and and glass um if it's if we're all doing it all the exact same way right that creates a fragile environment and that's how like problems can sneak in whereas if we have a more diversity in the how g is executed we can get more emergent behavior of of best practices and what works and what doesn't as as the environment changes um, I kind of also feel like, uh, the E and the S are a bit of a bull market luxury. Uh, and if, you know, you, if it's about returns or is it now you want returns and you want to feel good while you're getting them, um, you know, sometimes the game is hard enough without getting all the extra <laughs> stuff along with the good returns. So, uh, I don't, I don't want to disparage it because I think it's the, like, I think business in general can have a huge positive impact for society. Um, and I, I want people to think about that. And I like stakeholderism in general. And to your point, Toby, about the um, pay paying attention to all stakeholders that a business interacts with, 
uh, I think is hugely important. And that's been around forever if you had the long-term mindset, right? Like that's, there's nothing new about that. Uh, if you had been thinking about the long-term sustainability of the business, every good board that thought about the 30-year picture was worried about, I can't have my company trashing the environment that's going to come back on us, right? So anyway, I, I, I think it's good marketing. I think it's, um, I guess it's sort of a mixed bag for me, I guess. I think, uh, you know, I guess as, as, Lim, as Liz frames it, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me to look for companies that have all different types of people on, you know, within the company that are, you know, forcing it to think in a diversified manner. I mean, I, I, I do understand the merit in that. I, I don't have it as a limiting factor on what I will or won't invest in, though. Um, but I, I can understand why, you know, her framework arguably creates... Uh, sort of a, a more anti-fragile subset of companies to to pick from, but it's not, you're not going to hear me running an ESG fund anytime soon. Yeah, and I, just to hit on what you said, Bobby, in the beginning, I think, too, I think you're right. The, the governance part is probably the, the, at least from what I think, is the one of the more least talked about but important parts of micro and small cap investing. And I know the folks over at Small Cap Institute, which is Adam Epstein and David Scher, yep. they're going to be coming out with a couple courses on really kind of educating investors on what does a good corporate board even look like, you know, because there's, you know, there's a reason why, you know, some of the largest funds in the world spend hundreds of millions of dollars on corporate governance, you know, making sure that their companies have proper corporate governance and all those things. And obviously the types of things that they look for or put in place aren't exactly, you know, it doesn't make sense for a company that does 5 million in revenue and, you know, <laughs> they can't, they can't add on those types of procedures, but there's some simple things that I think investors can look for in the types of boards that they're investing in with companies and boards are really important. You know, I think we've all invested in companies where it was just the CEO and a bunch of guys or gals from their country club, you know, and you want the board to be a value add, you know, to that company. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Last question before I let everybody go. And this is a, this is a what if scenario. It was submitted by Paul Higgins at Paul H4224. Thank you, Paul. Assume you were banned from investing in stocks overnight. You had 10 years runway and startup capital wasn't an issue. What industry would you disrupt or what startup would you go all in on and why? By the way, this is going to be my Bill Simmons moment of the, this is going to be the social clip. You know, this is what we should social clip later. But uh, anyways, <laughs> I leave it, I leave it to y'all. What, what would you do? Who wants to go first? So I, whoever's going to go first, you know that they've been thinking about this the most. So that's really, that's the catch all question, right? So I think, let's see, who, who wants to go first on this one? I'll go last then. Yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll go after Jake. <laughs> I mean, you're asking what industry would you disrupt and why? Pretty much, yeah. What industry? I mean, it, would, you it would either I'd either attack healthcare or education because I think they're the biggest grifts on society. I agree. I healthcare in particular. I was okay, uh, for sure. I watched this interesting uh, talk about what Singapore does for their healthcare system. And it's, it's basically like a super high deductible plan that give people money to spend on their 
typical healthcare expenses. And then there's a competition for the service. So, you know, like you actually shop around a little bit, you make sure that the doctor is the one that you want uh, instead of just showing up and, and it's not an all you can eat like we do here, you know, with, especially social, uh, with Medicare, um, you just consume and consume. Um, and so we're at like 18% of GDP in frictional cost of keeping our everyone healthy and other places we're down at like, you know, sub 5% and similar qualities of care. I mean, what a deadweight loss for society in general. Like, I think it's such a misallocation of resources by having a, a bad system with bad incentives. So if I could wave my magic wand and, and have, I don't know if I want to do it, <laughs> but if I could have one industry that would uh, suddenly get shaken up overnight, it would be healthcare. Ian, Toby? I'll, I'll piggyback on that. I agree. I mean, it, and it just seems like I, that's where I'm invested right now, too. I think probably half my portfolio is in kind of med tech type areas where they're trying to make a difference in those areas and something where I find myself kind of holistically looking toward, you know, as well as you still have biker caps that are what I believe are truly changing the world as small micro cap companies in those areas that happen to be small micro cap companies where you can find high organic growth rates have modes, have great management teams, just an area that I've been focused on recently. So I agree. Yeah, it's hard. I, I, I have ideas for things that I want to do uh, subsequent to it, to the things that I'm currently doing. So I don't really want to discuss it too much. And I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. Would you disrupt value investing with an ETF? Uh, see, I think that the, the strategies that I have are appropriate for an ETF and there it's a way for sort of transforming what is I probably trade a little bit more than um like what a traditional value investor does because I'm um uh you know a little bit more quantitative but I would I would change the uh the structure to do a slightly different strategy I, I want to do a buy and hold for for basically forever uh as the next thing that I do and so I I've been looking at different ways of implementing that. I don't know if this is enough outside of the, I don't know if this answers the question, but, you know, I think that there are uh, more appropriate structures for that kind of strategy, but uh, that's, that's sort of the thing that I want to do next. Cause I think that there are, um, there's some interesting uh, phenomena that occur when you buy something and hold it for an extremely long, you just keep on holding. And I, I I don't know if it's a bull market, if it's it's something that only looks at good at the very top of a bull market or if it's something that uh, can survive a drawdown. So I just want to see what it looks like on the other side of a drawdown. Jake is agreeing with you, I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would, it, my two cents, it would be actually uh, not just education, but financial and education specifically. I think that probably is the, at least for me, you know, the next generation needs a lot more tools, um, whether it's a tech answer or just a better infrastructure answer. I'm not totally sure what it is, but just just better tools for K2, K-12. I can't Coins, believe that someone hasn't created this. <laughs> if you yeah. understand this. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't understand yeah. <laughs> why someone hasn't just put up. This is like, this is the standard K-12 education on youtube if your kid can go through and watch every single one of these videos and answer every single one of these like radio button exams on this html website that we have over here 
uh, they can pass three degrees. Well, I, I can't believe that, that that doesn't exist. That some maybe it does already exist. Maybe that's what Khan Academy is. But that seems to me like an obvious. Put it out there for free. Do it like MIT has stuck all of its courses out there for free. Like mm. Value After Hours does. <laughs> <laughs> Plan a microcab. <laughs> Don't worry. The premium option is coming, y'all. You know, it just you know, in five years, five ten years, the premium option will will eventually be there. But um, with that, I think we're about there. I mean, is there is there anything we've missed today that's a current event or something that we we needed to cover or? Uh, did, what do you think? I, I think we covered I'm, it all. I'm reading a good book. I don't know if any of you guys have read it. Ooh, yeah. It's called um, The Emotionally Intelligent Investor. Hmm. You guys ever hear of this one? I'm no, not, but I like, I like the idea. It's one of those books that you never hear anybody talk about. It was written in 2012 by a gentleman that worked for Soros and then I believe Karsh Asset Management and DLJ. And now he runs his own fund. Um, but it's really, I'm only a chapter into it, but it's really good. And it's one of those that has like, you know, like five, probably a five star and five reviews on, on Amazon, but it's almost 10 years old. And those are the ones I love to find. So far, it's been really hmm. good. So, Cool. Thank nice. you for the recommendation. That's that's up my alley. Actually, Ian, I'm, I'm reading uh, Phil Knight's book. Uh, I, on one of your recommendations, I think it was on the club, uh, or it's been, you know, yeah. on the bookshelf. For that micro cap but, uh, Nike. So. Yeah. yeah, the micro cap. Yeah, the, yeah exactly. <laughs> How to find the next microcap Nike? There's, I'm sure there's some kind of shoe and and uh, what is it NFT out there that we can maybe uh, figure find at some point. But uh, all right, well with that, um, let, let's let's uh, let's call it a day. I mean, uh, everybody, give if possible, your your give an Ian esque uh, tweet uh, of follow a final thought here. Okay, now I I don't know if everybody can do that, you know, because Ian is quite prolific in his Ian-esque tweets. So uh, uh, your final thought plus where everybody can go and follow you on uh, on social. And, uh, you know, I'm going to let Ian go first. He cannot give his own Ian-esque tweet. Yeah, well, I, I don't need to give a tweet, but, you know, something I actually was thinking about when I was thinking about everybody on this podcast right now was, I don't know, what, I was reading an old article. It was an interview that John Daly did back in the late 1990s. And I don't know if anybody, if everybody's familiar who John Daly is. Rip it and but rip John, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was grip it and rip it. And he kind of burst onto the, the golf scene in 1991. He was like the eighth alternative, alternate into the, I think, 1991 PGA Championship, which is one of the four majors in golf. And he kind of burst on the scene. Nobody heard about him. Probably one of the most, I don't know, like, Nobody thought he was going to win, and he ended up winning that tournament by three strokes. And part of his phenomenon was he just gripped it and ripped it. He was one of the first players ever to hit over 300 yards. He was doing things in the golf course never nobody's ever seen before. Drinking and, and smoking. Was, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And he was drinking and smoking. He kind of have his rally towel going down the 18th, 18th hole, and, and the crowd was going nuts. And he was just one of those people that, you know, he, there's, a, there's a lot of him in each one of us, and it, well, unfortunately, he drank and smoked and gambled quite a bit, and he was overweight. But uh, there was also this funny story. I think the following year in 92, him and Mark Kalkovecchia were playing together, and they were playing awful. And there's you know, there four rounds in golf. They were playing awful through three rounds, and they both agreed they're going to they're gonna play the final round as quickly as they could. And they played the final round, I think, in just under two hours, and that's walking. You know, And they actually wow. got fined because the PGA Tour said it just wasn't you know professional you know, for them to do that. They both shot like 82s or something like that. They didn't care. 
but that's the that's the type of character he was and but he always had this huge fanfare you know of nobody would fill a gallery like john daly did you know when he was winning and he ended up winning another major in 95 but even you know in 99 through the 2000s when he was really awful you know because he was really overweight and he wasn't really practicing anymore but they'd still let him play he still had just as big a gallery as tiger woods did and tiger woods was you know just a phenom and I'm I'm always interested in like how people build audiences and credibility and things like that. And I, I often think back to sort of this Tiger Woods, John Daly phenomenon where it's like you're either you either build your audience by looking like you're perfect or being perfect or by being vulnerable. You know, and people are kind of attracted to those two types of things. You know, I think Bill's seen some success on his podcast because, you know, he's being who he is. You know, he wears his emotions on his sleeve and people like that because they see a piece of them and Bill. And, and I think a lot of, I think the rest of you are like that. They're on here as well. And um, I don't know why. I, I was just thinking about that and I read that. And anyway, I read this interview from Daly. I think it was done in 1999. So this is when he was still decent. And this is when Tiger Woods burst in the scene. And they actually were counting how many people were following John Daly versus Tiger. And more people were following John Daly, even though he was like 12 strokes back. And they asked him after the round, they said, so, you know, why is it that you can still draw a huge gallery around you, you know, even more so than Tiger Woods? It doesn't make any sense. And he just said, it was a great, one of the greatest quotes I ever heard. He said something like, Tiger is incredible. He's perfect. He said, but I'm just a normal human being. He said, I gamble, I drink, I smoke, I'm overweight. I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. He said, when people see me win, they believe they can win too. And it was just like, it was like probably the best quote I ever heard ever. But anyway, I have no idea what that relates to anything. I just decided to share that story. That was great. And I, and I like to, I, I, I've been trying to be the John Daly of microcap podcasts as much as possible. In fact, I think I, my, my producer gets so mad at me because I always say I like to, I love being the dumbest person in the room. Well, so I think, I think, and the reason the I brought shelf. that up, I think all of you guys have been yeah, really, hence the shelf. <laughs> I think all of you guys have been really successful. And I was thinking about it like, hey, listen, I'm not perfect. I'm sure, sure as heck isn't. But I think a lot of you guys have been successful with Value After Hours, with Bobby and your your thing and Bill with your new podcast, just because you're vulnerable. You put yourselves out to out there. And that's what people are attracted to. So just keep crushing it. So. Well, thank you. And please keep hiring bot farms to support us. We appreciate it. <laughs> It's getting expensive. Oh, <laughs> we we need all the help we can get, Ian. <laughs> Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Don't worry, Ian's coming out with a pod at some point in the next ten years. I'm gonna. I'm. I, I wish I could. I, I wish I could place my bet on that. <laughs> so I have one from. Um, I think if I remember right, Bill, it was with your podcast with uh, Adam Robinson, and I think he said that it was a story that. Uh, Mario Andretti had told his son and he said that uh, the key to racing is you you have to win the race as slowly as you can. And I thought, I, like I had to sit there and think about it for a while and I've been kind of internalizing it ever since I heard that. And um, like, God, that's right. I mean, I think it applies not just to investing, right? Like not taking stupid risks, not wadding yourself up in the corner on the final lap because you had to, you know, win at a faster pace than everyone else. Right. Like, um, but I think it applies in a lot of other places too in life. And, uh, it's really easy to get focused too much on trying to, 
to beat everyone else and to, you know, to push past places where you probably should and, and then take shortcuts um, health wise. I mean, almost any asset or aspect of your life, it's really easy to try to take these shortcuts, which is another way of, you know, kind of winning by going too fast. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for, for winning the race, but, but going as slow as you can and still winning. So that's, that's my little thing. That was a great one. That was a great part of that podcast too. That was good. Absolutely. Toby, your, your final thought and or anecdote and yeah. or sports reference to <laughs> investing. I, I, um, I would say, yeah, I don't, I don't have any great ones off the top of my head, but I, I, um, I would, I'd say that I, th- I think that small and micro cap is an unusually good opportunity at the moment. I think it's um, that there are very long cycles and it, it's been through a very long down cycle. And I, it looks to me like it may have turned the corner. It's very early days. There have been a lot of head fakes. But if it has, in fact, turned the corner, then uh, this is going to be a, a hot space for the next five or 10 years. And, and that's exciting. And so I'm looking forward to seeing it. Very cool. And Bill? I got nothing. <laughs> very, perfect. That's a I have nothing great- to add. <laughs> Good stuff, guys. All right. Well, with that, I'll let y'all go. Thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun today. I'm sure we'll do a part two at some point. And uh, there might be more books on here and or maybe the shelf will be gone. We have no idea. But uh, I I really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll be talking to all you guys soon. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well-equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.